Well, we're, t- we're in Ephesians chapter 5 today. I want to begin reading in verse 1 uh, right now. The Bible says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And then verse 3 that we spoke of last week, it says, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. Today, I want us to learn how we should live in a culture where there is so much pervasive sexual sin. Last week we learned that a genuine Christian cannot be content with ongoing sexual sin. We spent most of our time in Ephesians 5.5 and we learned of the seriousness of ongoing sexual sin in the life of a believer. Today we're going to talk about the same subject but with a different focus. Instead of focusing on sexual sin in our own lives, we're going to ask the question, how do I relate to other people who may be engaged in sexual sin? Now, in order to address this question, first we have to establish the standard. I want to make sure we all know what we're talking about. I want to make sure that we're all starting from the same place. And so, what is God's standard? when it comes to sexual sin. Well, we've learned that God's standard comes from his word. God's standard is not determined by consent. Often today you'll hear people say, as long as it is two consenting adults, then that makes it okay. But right and wrong, the standard of God does not come from consent. It also does not come from preference. What's right or wrong does not depend upon what you prefer. It also doesn't come from attraction. Something isn't right simply because you feel attracted to it. And it is not determined, the standard is not determined by acceptance. It's not right because many, many people believe that it is right. The standard comes from God's word. And so what I've tried to do, just as an introduction to this message, is take what God's word says about this standard and summarize it into just a few sentences. Now, I'm really not going to preach on these sentences. This is just the starting place, but I want us to have a starting place. And so you'll see this in your worship outline, and we'll show this to you on the screen. I'm just going to read it. It's about four or five sentences. I'm not sure. I'm just going to read it to you, and you'll see God's standard as it's revealed in his word. So here it is. God made us male and female. He made no distinction between sex and gender. Our gender is indicated by our sex. Any denial of one's gender or sex assigned at birth is sin. And he created sexuality for marriage which he intends to be between one man and one woman joined together in a lifelong covenant commitment. 
God's purpose for sexuality is for having children and for strengthening the marriage bond. Any sexual activity outside of God's intention for marriage is sin. Sexual sin is sin against God, against our own bodies, and against those we have wronged through it, and it is ultimately harmful for humanity. That is God's scripture standard for sexuality. Now, I've read, I believe, all of the arguments written by some who would call themselves welcoming and affirming. And I can sum up those arguments in just one sentence. So what are those people who disagree with this and still call themselves Christians, how do they explain what is so clearly presented in Scripture? Here's their explanation. The Bible doesn't mean what it seems like it means over and over and over. And so you can read the whole book. You can read stacks of books. I've read these stacks of books, and that's the message. One sentence. Listen, church. If we're going to be Bible-believing Christians, then we must accept this as God's standard. I know that there are some things that are not clear in Scripture. I know that. Certainly there are things that we can't be 100% certain about. But frankly, this is not one of those. You can reject the Bible as the source of truth if you want to, but you cannot look to the Bible and draw any honest, reasonable conclusion about God's standard than the one I've just shared. Okay, with that in mind, with that standard clearly communicated, what should we do when we have people in our lives, people that we love and care for, who, who reject that standard or who choose to live a lifestyle contrary to that standard? What do we do with children or grandchildren or family or friends or neighbors or coworkers? What do we do with people that we know and love more than life itself who have chosen a different path? So many of you reached out to me after last week's message and everything I heard was an encouraging word, but people's hearts, some of them were broken because of the people that you know, people very close to you who have chosen a different path. There are so many people today confused about how we should react and how we should interact with people who have chosen a standard different than the standard we find in scripture. And so how should we live in this world where sexual sin is so pervasive? I think the answer is in the verses that we see right here, especially verse two. And I wanna spend some time on that this morning. It's gonna be a simple message. Uh, we're gonna ask the question, how do we live in this world with such pervasive sexual sin? And we're going to see one, two, three, some clear guidelines in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. The first thing I want you to see is that we must walk in love. Look back at verse 2, right at the beginning, it says, and walk in love as Christ also, also loved us. 
This word walk is uh, one of Paul's favorite words in the book of Ephesians. Uh, it appears six different times in this short book. And we've already spent time looking at two of those occasions. Chapter 4, verse 1, we read that we should walk worthy of the calling that we have in Christ Jesus. We also saw in chapter 4, verse 17, that we should no longer walk like the Egyptians. The Egyptians, that's a song, isn't it? We should no longer walk like the Gentiles or the Egyptians in that we should not live like Christians live. What this is, it's an analogy about lifestyle. Our lifestyle, our disposition, our attitude, our nature, our character should be one of love. That should be the most distinctive thing about any of us, that we are people of love. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4. Let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who has been born of God knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love should describe who we are. It should describe our attitude, our disposition. It should just be the fragrance that follows us into every relationship. If we were to ask someone, if we were to ask everyone, everyone you know, to describe you with three words, three words, what would those three words be? What would the people who you live with, what would they say? What about the people that you work with? Maybe even people that have a different lifestyle or a different conviction than you have. How would they describe you in three words? Listen, for all of us, the first word all of those people should choose is that we're loving. We ought to walk in love. Everybody who knows us, those who agree and those who disagree, ought to come away with this one certain thing, that person is loving. Now, what does that mean specifically? We're going to talk about some specific activities in a moment, but, but how do we have the specific attitude of love? I want us to be as specific as possible today. Well, when I think about the attitude of love, I think about the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know that passage, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22, 23? There are nine things that the Bible says will just be a part of the life of a Christian. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you, these things will be true of you. That you will have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those will characterize all true Christians. Now, half of those are things you do for others. Love. That means you put the needs of others ahead of yourself. Patience. That means that you give others the space to do things that you wish they wouldn't do. Kindness, that's a kind activity that you do for someone. Goodness, that means generosity. Gentleness, that means that you say kind words. That's what it means for us to be loving, to walk in love everywhere we go. You know, church, the... The world sometimes looks at churches like ours, churches faithful to God's word, standing upon God's word. They often look to us and they say of us 
that we are just a bunch of angry white men. Have you heard that phrase? Just a bunch of angry white men. Now, that is very unfortunate. I want us to remember that we can hold high the standard of God without being angry about it. We can be faithful and consistent and we can proclaim the whole counsel of God's word without being angry about it. We can even sharply disagree with our culture without being angry about it. Can I tell you what my prayer is for our church? My prayer is that we will, of course, stand on God's word and proclaim God's word regardless of the cost, that we will be faithful and consistent, that we will clearly be against the things that God is against. But I don't want us to be known for what we're against. I don't want to be known as the church that's against homosexuality. I don't want to be known as the church that's against abortion or as the church that's against adultery. Now, we're against those things because the Bible is against those things. But I want us to be known for what we're for, not for what we're against. I want us to be known because we're for Jesus, that we are for the gospel, that we are for forgiveness, that we are for the restoration of a broken person, that we are for love and peace. The Bible says in this sexual sin saturated society that we live in that we should walk in love and so when you think about people and all of us know people we all care about people who have chosen a lifestyle contrary to God's standard our first attitude should be that of love toward those people now the second thing that we must do living in this uh, culture where sin is so pervasive, sexual sin, we must be humble about the sins of others. I think one of the biggest enemies of loving people and honoring God can be our lack of humility. Uh, oftentimes we just think we're better than other people or we're too good, I'm too good to be guilty of the kinds of awful sins that some people are guilty of. Or we think that we don't need as much forgiveness as some people need. Or we think that we're experts at what people are going through. And that kind of attitude is neither helpful nor true. It's just not true. I want to read to you a little bit of a parable uh, that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 18. Uh, you could turn there, but just follow with me. This is an easy parable to hear. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, who trusted in themselves and looked down on everyone else because they thought that they were more righteous. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, 
I thank you that I'm not greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. And so he prays and he brags that he is better than those sinners. And then verse 13 says, but the tax collector, the sinner, uh, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, if we look down on other people because we think we're better than them, that we have so much goodness, we would never be guilty of what they're guilty of, that that attitude is not one that honors God and God doesn't honor, honor it. This is a lesson that we, that we need to learn. So specifically, how do we react to people that we know who are living in sexual sin? Well, first of all, we just need to be humble, humble about the differences between us and them. We need to be humble about those differences. Oftentimes, we, we think those sinners are not like me. Those people engaged in some sort of sexual sin, those people aren't like me. They're some sort of deviant. That's the only way to explain what they do. Listen, if you think that you could never be guilty of some unthinkable sexual sin, then you have either overestimated your own goodness or you have underestimated the grace and the influence of God in your life to restrain sin. The truth is we're all sinners. And the apostle Paul was quick to say that there were, if there was anything good in him, it was because of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Have you ever heard that phrase there, uh, but for the grace of God goes me? Have you heard that? That's a phrase that people used to say we should start saying again. And when we see somebody guilty of a sin that we've not been guilty of, and we can't even perhaps imagine ourselves guilty of that sin, we should recognize that the difference between them and us is more about grace and mercy of God than it is anything else. The sobering truth is that apart from Christ under the right circumstances with the wrong influences, there's no temptation that could not pull you in. We need to embrace a little bit of humility when it comes to comparing ourselves with others who are guilty of sin. The second part of this is that we should be humble about what we think we know about the nature of their struggle. When I think of people I know guilty of sexual sin, I need to remember that I don't know the whole story. The truth is we all fight our own demons, right? And when you look at someone in sexual sin, there are just some things you don't know. You don't know the circumstances that led to their sin. You don't know how they may be struggling with some propensity to sin that you don't understand. You, you don't know the lies that they've been told. You don't know the efforts that they have made to overcome that sin. See, the problem is that we often tend to see sin, the sins of others, purely as a matter of self-restraint. 
Those people just need to get a hold of themselves. We see the sins of others, it's a matter of self-restraint. We don't see our own sins the same way, right? When I sin, I give myself a little more grace and mercy. When I sin, there are all kinds of reasons. But when you sin, it's because you don't have enough self-restraint. That's what I think. That's what we all think. But the truth is, sin is not simply a matter of a lack of self-restraint. The Bible says in Romans 6, 7 that, that lost people, people without Christ, are slaves to sin. That means they sin. They mean, that means they can't stop sinning. They don't need more self-restraint. They need Jesus. They're like, a, they're like a person dying of thirst, but in his confusion, he's drinking salt water. And he thinks it will satisfy, but ultimately it will kill him. That's the picture. They don't need our condemnation. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Jesus said it. John chapter 4, verse 13 he says, Jesus, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. That's the water of the world. That's the way the world satisfies longings. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. The Bible teaches us that that the solution is not more self-restraint, the solution is Jesus. The problem is not a lack of self-restraint, the problem is a lack of Jesus. And we need to be humble about the nature of what's going on in the life of a person struggling with sexual sin. And then the, the third part of this is we must be confident in the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Listen, church, people can be changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what their sin is. We need to have confidence in the gospel. The gospel can change anybody. About a month ago or so, I was uh, accosted in a drugstore here in Nacogdoches, a uh, gentleman recognized me from television, says he watches every week, hopefully he's watching now. Um, he, he said, I am never, ever gonna come to your church. And I don't know that he's ever been here before, uh, but he said he would never come. And then he told me why. Uh, he said, I will never come to your church uh, because of a sinner that you let in. And then he told me the name of the center, me and the gathering crowd of people at Walgreens. And he told me about the center's sin. He had the details. Turns out he didn't have the correct details, but he thought he did. And I was, uh, I don't know, embarrassed a little bit, but, uh, but I was angry more than I was embarrassed. And I said, if that man's sins are so bad that God can't forgive them, then so are yours. And that apparently hit a little too close to home and he left. <laughs> uh, so if he's watching on television, come on by the church tomorrow. Uh, pastor Mark, our associate pastor, would be glad to meet with you. <laughs> 
Listen, the gospel, the gospel is so wonderful. What Jesus has done to make it possible that we could be right with the Father and our lives could be changed. The power is not in us. The power is not in, in us overcoming some deviant thought. It's not in us exercising some self-restraint. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should celebrate that. Let me read to you a whole list of sins. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, hang with me and listen to this. Do you not know, Paul says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So these people are, are lost. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who is he talking about? He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That verse means just what it seems like it means. But listen to the next verse. And some of you used to be like this. What does that mean? That means the gospel can change you. He goes on to say, but you used to be like that, but not now, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. The gospel can change anybody, anybody. And so when it comes to how we relate to people involved in sexual sin, let's, let's walk in love. And let's be humble about the sin that they're engaged in. And then finally, let us love like Jesus. So if you look back at verse 2, Ephesians 5.2, uh, you see at the end of that verse, he's already told us to walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. He says, we're to love like Christ loved. And how did Christ love? Well, he tells us, he gave himself for us. It seems like you, you can't talk about love without going to the cross. Jesus died on the cross to show his love and make it possible that we can have uh, a right relationship with the Father. So how do we love like Jesus? Well, I think the most obvious application of this is that we love people while they are still in their sin. Listen, church, this isn't about loving people who clean up their lives. This isn't about loving people who are fixed. This isn't about loving people who live right. This is about loving people still in their sins. If we're going to love like Christ, how did he love? Well, the Bible says that God proves his love for us in this, Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't wait for people to fix their lives. We love them in the middle of their sin. And I think perhaps the best illustration of this is just uh, an event that happened in the life of Christ. And so it's in John chapter 8. I'm going to read it pretty quickly. Many of you will be familiar with it. And we're not really preaching on the particulars of the story but I want you to get the gist of it. And I want you to see how did Jesus love somebody who was guilty of sexual sin? Well, in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, it says, At dawn, Jesus went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. And when the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center, Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. 
And in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. So what do you say? They ask this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So they bring this woman. They have caught her in the act of adultery. I'm not sure how you do that. But uh, here she is, and they march her in front of everybody. You, You can imagine her shame, her embarrassment, and her fear. And they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? It says, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. In those days, they at least were allowed to stone these women to death. And then he stood down, stooped down again, and continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. So we don't know exactly what Jesus was writing, but he must have been, we're assuming some things, speculating, but I I can imagine him writing down the sins that he knew of that were in the lives of the people who were making the accusations. And so these men, so mad that they had found a woman who was in sexual sin, so angry about her sexual sin, when they looked down in the sand and maybe they saw their initials and then a whole list of sins after that, they decided that they just needed to go home, okay? Until all of them had had gone. Verse 10 says, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now, let me show you how Jesus reacted and ministered to someone obviously guilty of of sexual sin. Number one, he teaches us that we should embrace personal humility. That was the message he had for those accusers. Men, before you start throwing rocks at this woman, maybe you ought to think about the sin that's in your own life. And I think if we would do that, it would temper some of the anger that sometimes we show toward people who have chosen a different lifestyle. Secondly, we need to refuse to condemn. Uh, If I had a neighbor, a coworker, a family member living in sexual sin, maybe a different lifestyle, here's what I would hope I would do. I hope I would respect that person. I hope I would be friendly to that person. I hope I would invite that person to my home for dinner. I hope I would laugh with them and be kind and generous with them. The Bible says that Jesus was a friend of sinners and he was criticized for it. We need to refuse to condemn. Jesus didn't condemn this woman. And then next, we must not waver on the truth. Jesus says, go and sin no more. This isn't about compromising the truth or the standard of God. We must still call sin, sin. And we must not condone it, and we certainly must not celebrate it. One of the questions that that I get asked as a pastor, uh, maybe more times than, than you would think, is, Pastor, do you think I should attend a gay wedding. You ever been invited to a gay wedding? What should you do? 
And here's how I answer people. I would love on that couple and I would be generous with my love, but I am not going to go and celebrate somebody's sin. You see, we need to be the most loving people on the planet, but we must not compromise God's word. Jesus said, go and sin no more. And standing on the truth, sometimes it's going to be awkward, and sometimes it's going to be painful, but we must stand without compromise on the truth. Our love and our firm stand on the truth are not mutually exclusive things. In fact, we can turn both of them up higher, okay? We, we should love more than we're loving, and we should stand even firmer on the truth than we're standing. You might say, Pastor, I have people in my life that have chosen a different lifestyle, and they will not listen to me. Well, I understand. But what we should do is we should sit down and come up with a plan for how we're going to shower them with love over the next year or two and pray daily that God will give us the favor so that we can share the gospel with them. Uh, when I lived in Columbus, Ohio, there was a, or just outside of Columbus, Ohio, there was a, a church, another church, other side of Columbus, and they got word that a group of LGBT protesters were coming to church on a Sunday morning. Uh, the protesters had to file for a permit to protest, and so the church knew they were coming, and it was, I don't know, 75 or 100 of them, and maybe a church the size of this. It was going to be a pretty big protest, and so what was the church going to do? What was the church going to do? I'll tell you what they did. They had church like normal, the normal starting time. Everybody was there, uh, but they had made some preparations, and they finished the service just a little bit early. And at the height of the protest, they stopped at the service, they finished the service, and the church grabbed a bunch of chairs and tables and the biggest potluck lunch you've ever seen and went out to the street and fed all of those people. And the church members sat with them and talked with them. And many of them made relationships, formed relationships with them. And some of them, over the next weeks and months, prayed to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior and saw God change their lives because the church first stood firmly upon the standard. This is right and this is wrong and we won't compromise for anybody. But they also showed the love that God calls us to show the same kind of love that Christ has shown to us. And then finally, we just have to share the gospel. That's what, that's what Jesus did. Jesus' heart in this story was not to condemn this woman, it was to restore this woman. We need to share the gospel. We're not trying to condemn. We're not trying to win an argument. We're not even just trying to change someone's behavior. We're trying to change their heart and life. Let me give you some, some sentences that I think we ought to be saying. How about this? If you have failed and you have fallen into sexual sin, know this. God is a God of forgiveness, and he can put you back together if you will give him all of the parts. That's the message they ought to hear from the church. How about this? God's love is the power that will liberate you from sin. It is not the reward for liberating yourself. 
How about this? There is a God who cares for you so much that he left heaven to come after you. And he took on himself the shame and the sinful actions, your shame, your sinful actions, so that you could be washed in his blood and made purely, pure and holy in his sight. You know, there's some sin that just, and I'm sure the same is true of you, there's some sin that just turns my stomach. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, there's some sin that uh, when I see it depicted on television or something, it just, it just makes me sick. But there's some sexual sin that doesn't. And I wonder about that. Uh, I was uh, talking with uh, Caleb Castro, our Hispanic pastor. We were talking about this this week. And we said, you know, there's, there's some sin that would make me change the channel immediately. And then there's some sin that, um, that just does not. And I hate that about me. But here's the point. No sin has ever been as repulsive to me as my sin was repulsive to God. Does that make sense? I can think of some sins that just make me sick. Can't stand to see them. But the sin I've committed is even more repulsive to God than that. Yet God looked past my sin and he saw a man created in the image of God. And he sent his son to die for me. Listen, he sent his son to die for me despite the repulsiveness of my sin. So what should I do? I should look past, I should look behind the sins, the sexual sins, and I should see a man or woman created in the image of God, and I ought to love them with the gospel love of Jesus Christ that they might change. And so I say this, if you are in sexual sin today, you are drinking ocean water. And it may seem like it satisfies, but that is not real and it will not last. It'll be deadly. But if you will turn to Christ today and you will say that sin is sin and I want you to save me and change me, our God can and will because he loves you. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, these are hard things to talk about. They're not happy things to talk about. But Father, we so want to walk in love and to love people like you loved people. Father, we need to hear this. We need to be challenged. Father, help us to be lovers like Christ. And for those that are struggling in sexual sin, may they turn to you for healing and forgiveness and for change. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.